Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In this episode, we are going to talk about brand positioning. Uh, in fact, we talked about positioning with Philip Morgan in one of my uh, past episodes, but it was more around smaller consulting firm or freelancers or, or one man or one woman shop. In this episode, we're going to dig more into brand positioning, even if you're a bigger company or work for a bigger company. And we'll talk about why brand positioning is important because I'm throwing this term uh, away right now as a buzzword, but it's not really if you explain what it is. So how to occupy a distinct place in people's mind, how to make sure this is unique in the marketplace and why it's so important uh, for your marketing. So my guest today has a very original idea to this concept of, of brand positioning that he calls the positioning roulette with 26 different cards and options to pick from. So we'll dig into that in more details. My guest is based in Minneapolis in the US. He has 20 years of experience building brands in Europe, Asia, Latin America, and for the last 15 years in the US. He's led the strategy departments of some of the biggest agencies worldwide, which is pretty impressive. He is also the author and the creator of the best-selling positioning roulette flashcard that I just mentioned. Uh, he also created a family game, which is called the 26 popular children games from around the world. And the number 26 seems to be something that he's quite a big fan of. Uh, and finally, he's a blogger for the Huffington Post, a contributor to various trade publications in the US and Europe, as well as a regular speaker at conferences. So as you can hear, my guest knows a thing or two about what we're going to talk about today, which is brand positioning. So, Oli Applebaum, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for having me, Louis. Uh, pleasure to be on your show. And I love the introduction, by the way, so I think I'm going to use that in the future for uh, my potential clients. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. You can use that for free. <laughs> uh, so why, why do companies and marketers need brand positioning? What does it mean? Well, it basically guides all your activities from, you know, the product development to distribution strategy, to communication, to marketing. So it aligns the whole company behind sort of like an objective of what you want a brand to be. And I think it's becoming even more important in today's world. We all know social media has exploded. You know, I hate this, this um statement that, you know, consumers own the brand. I think that's the worst thing a marketeer can do. Um, I think, you know, if you don't have a clear sense of who you are, what your position is in the market, which you described well at the beginning of, of this interview, um, and you have consumers starting to, you know, provide their own interpretation or critique or criticize you, then you're basically just, um, uh, letting them fully determine and define what you are and what you should stand for. And that's not a good business proposition. That's, that is, uh, so positioning helps you guide yourself through this turbulent times, social media and, and the culture we live in right now. Yeah. There is this, this saying, I've heard that many times. It's like at this stage, in this day and age, uh, it's not about who your customers think you are, how, how people think you are, which I don't disagree with though, because Brand is a perception. It doesn't exist, okay. right? Uh, in this great book uh, called uh, Sapiens, the author, we forgot the name, but very good guy, uh, talk about this principle of, of, of brands that are just imaginary things that we all agree upon, very much like money uh, yeah. that has a value because we all agree that it has value, but there's nothing else. So 
It does, though, mean that for a successful brand positioning, people in their head must kind of agree with it, right, in a sense? Uh, 200% agree. And, uh, and I think that's the difference. The brand positioning, it's an internal navigation tool, right? And what the brand perception is what you hope consumers will make out of it or what you think consumer will make out of it, with, out of it which is, you know, um, I think Jeff Bezos said that, um, you know, your brand position is what people say about you when you leave the room. So your position is almost who you are, your character, how you come across while you are in the room. And your brand perception is what happens and what people say when you leave the room, basically. But to be able to create that impression, you need to know who you are, what you stand for, you know, what you'll agree to do, what you will not agree to do, and these kind of things. And the, the quote I was referring to is simply this other quote that is very much used in um, in marketing over the last few years, which I hate completely, which is this notion of companies don't own their brand, consumers do. And that's basically the, let's start it with this whole co-creation stuff and, and stuff like that. But it's very misleading. There is some truth to it, but it's also very misleading. But so correct me if I'm wrong and make sure, let's make sure to, that we are setting the, the record straight here because yeah. you're saying brand positioning is an internal tool. Yeah. But then you're also saying that this is used to help people like perceive your company, your products, your brand yeah. in a certain way, right? So it's not really internal. It's maybe the compass to go somewhere, um, but it feels like positioning and, and the, the perception are, are the same thing. They need to be aligned almost because you can come up, I can come up with any shitty positioning, um, but if people don't agree with it or don't feel like this is the right thing, then it's, it's failed, right? 200%. So it needs to, uh, to provide an inherent value that people want to, you know, engage with your brand. It needs to deliver something that people are actually looking for. And there needs to be a certain consistency between who you want to be and how consumers see you, obviously. And that's the whole game of marketing, right? Trying to manage this consistency. And what I mean with that is, is it goes beyond communication, right? So when you take the customer perspective from, from, uh, uh, for a second and you think about how are brands being perceived? How does someone, you know, form an opinion or a perception about something? It's, the personal experience with a brand or an objective. So you tell me, you know, there's this great brand of yogurts. I try it, tastes like shit. I'm not going to buy it again, you know, and 20 people can tell me it's the greatest product out there. I'm still not going to buy it. So it's personal experience. It's sort of like shared experiences, which is what is it my friends, my neighbor, my colleagues tell me I should buy as a camera, you know, as a lawnmower, as a new snack, whatever it is. And then there is the marketing activities um, um, that are created by the brand, the website, the brand experiences created, the online experience and all these kind of things. So all these elements help shape the perception a customer or consumer has about a brand, a product or a service. But the, what, what you can influence as the brand is what this experience is going to be like, what hopefully people will say about you and what your marketing and look and feel will look like. And that is the part that is driven by the positioning segment. So it's the sender versus the receiver, right? So I can say something and hope that you understand what um, I meant. And the worst thing that can happen is that I, that you misunderstand what I'm trying to say. And then you have a different brand perception than how I try to position my brand, if that makes sense. So it's, 
ultimately kind of it feels like it's the intersection of those three things that you said like my own personal experiences what others are are saying about it and the way they experience it and the actual way these companies market it and the experiences yeah. are crafted because if i felt i suppose if two of the three things are there but not the third it's it would fail in a sense let's say Let's say this brand of yogurt is, I find it very good, but all of my friends and colleagues and family said it's shit. Uh-huh. I could change my mind. I could almost be influenced by them. Say, oh, yeah, actually, they all think it's shit. Why, why am I eating it? Everybody's mocking me or whatever. And even if the marketing of the company says it's the best yogurt in the, in the, in the world, it tastes great. Maybe the, maybe your positioning will fail. Uh, I agree. Yeah, to some extent, yes. I think the the uh, next dimension which you are d- adding here is the social component, right? So, yeah. what kind of yogurt I have in my fridge, I don't really care what my friends think about it. Now, if I go to a bar and drink a certain brand of liquor, you know that everyone thinks is a you know a liquor for grandmas, and you just like the flavor, then you are probably more likely going to you know step back and go back to a safer choice. So it, it, there is also this social component, obviously, about about that. And in one sentence, because we are, I think we're throwing a lot of a lot of keywords, of buzzwords, right now. Yeah. Um, in one sentence, if you have to really put it simply, why does everyone listening to this podcast should care about brand positioning? Why does it matter so much? Because it's really the North Star, I think, that is going to guide all of a company's activities to appeal to a specific consumer segment. That's why. So it it drives the initiative. It needs to be appealing. Obviously, it needs to resonate with a specific consumer segment. But again, the part that we often tend to forget is that it drives everything the company does. Last question before we dive in into a step-by-step process to use your positioning roulette, which I really love as a concept. And we're going to pick an actual example of a company and try to to position this company using the the 26 cars that you have. The last question is, um, what you just said sounds like what a good marketing strategy is. Mm -hmm. So what is the difference between a marketing strategy, which is about picking your North Star, where you want to go, where you don't want to go, and brand positioning? Well, I think a positioning statement summarizes a good marketing strategy. But a marketing strategy, um, basically, you would start with what are the key issues, what are the key problems you're trying to um, solve, right? Um, So the marketing strategy takes it then a step further in implementing it, in bringing it to life. So it's really the what do we stand for and how are we going to bring it to life in the marketplace and with what specific consumers. So it is a core element of the marketing strategy. Okay, great. Thanks for simplifying that. Yeah. Now let's get into the step-by-step. So our listeners really love this step, love, love this, the practicality of, of each episode. And this is what we're going to try to, to get into together. So briefly, if you have to, to, to talk about your solution, which is quite yeah. original, the positioning relate, what is it again? So, it, it, the observation, it's based on, a, on an observation. And at the time I was working in Europe um, for, a, for a big international advertising agency for a couple of international clients. And I was working in different countries on different product categories. And what I realized or what I stumbled upon was there are some mechanisms that seem to pop up on a regular basis. And let's say one of these mechanisms could be, you know, a brand in 
the U.S. uses a country of origin sort of like positioning platform to differentiate its brand in the U.S., but another brand in a completely different category, let's say in the U.K., um, uses a similar country of origin territory to differentiate itself. Different category, different time zone, different uh, uh, geography. And so I started to see some of these patterns emerge and I asked myself the question, well, how many of these patterns can I actually identify? And so I started to look at hundreds and hundreds of case studies and literally, I'm not an academic, I'm not a theoretical person. So I was literally reading the case study and say, ooh, they're highlighting, highlighting the ingredients to differentiate the position of their brand. Or, oh, look at that, they tap into a consumer ritual. And basically cataloged all these territories until I got tired of, uh, of going through 1,200 case studies. And basically until I, I started to realize that I was always coming back to those same areas. So, so let me get you right what, there because it's yeah. interesting, the story, before we dive into. So where did you find the case studies, those case studies? Did you just Google them? No, there are, there are some, uh, some resources like uh, work.com, W-A-R-C.com, which is basically a content provider to the marketing and, um, and uh, advertising industry. And uh, uh, there are some other organizations like Global FE Organization, which every year award the most effective marketing campaigns in either the different countries or around the world. And the cool thing about them is there are case studies around that. So it's all case studies that felt like, wow, they help business build a business over a period of time. How long did it take you to compile all of that? Well, the insight I came across literally um, before moving to the U.S. I moved in 2002, so we're talking, what is it, like 16 years, so 17 years. And then, you know, I got married, got children, all that stuff. But I started, I've always been a collector of case studies. And it literally maybe took me 10 years on and off to do that. So it's not that I sat down on Monday morning and said, I'm going to read all the case studies until I get the model. It's just over time. And what I started to do is I started to prototype the approach in my work. You know, when I had client workshops, I started to use it without calling it that way, but just to facilitate workshops and see what works and that what doesn't. And then uh, five years ago, I decided to, to start my own business here in Minneapolis. And then it was this moment of, okay, I have this half-baked cake. Um, either I'm leaving it behind and, and forget about it, um, but there was always this belief of, okay, I, I don't want to know what would happen if I didn't do it. Um, so I decided, okay, now it's my chance. Let's do it. So it, then, then it took me like, I think three, four weeks to systemize everything uh, to get it done. So, so there you have it folks. I mean, you can hear, uh, from my guest today, how long it takes from creating a unique work of value, something that is truly remarkable, 10 years in the making really. Um, so that's a good case study as well to show <laughs> to people that you need to show up every day, do something, test it in the, in the field that you probably have done in your various agencies you work for, yep. improve it over time. And now what you were going to share together, what you're going to share with us is really the result of those 10 years of even, even more of, of, of sweat and, and effort. So let's go uh, about it. I think people can't wait to hear all of those 26 cards. So I'm going to, yep. I'm going to ask you to actually go through those 26 cards basically the 26 options that companies can pick and, and correct me if I'm wrong, the concept of your roulette is basically that you pick two or three to have yeah. a strong positioning, right? At, at the idea to rent. So the idea is you go through the whole set and we can walk through them. Um, but then you, the way you go through them is you go through them either randomly 
just to, you know, keep your brains on its toes and, and be less predictable. Or what you can do is you take two or three of the cards and try to create forced connections. And, uh, and if that what makes sense. Mean? No, it doesn't. So what do you mean? Let, let me step back for a second. So indeed there are 26 cards, but they're organized into three different categories. And the three categories represent the key sort of like cornerstone of every positioning statement. Okay. Uh, it assumes that you know your consumer base and you have defined the consumers. But once you have that, um, you basically need to look at three things. One is what's the frame of reference in which you position your brand uh, for from a consumer? So you have a soft drink. What is it? Is it a soft drink? Is it an energy drink? Is it a sports drink? Is it a juice? If it has uh, fruits in it and stuff like that, you know, um, is it a thirst quencher? Those are all different categories um, in which you can frame it in a sense. Um, that's number one. Number two is what I call the product story itself is there's this um, agency, advertising agency that um, that has this claim, uh, truth well told. And, and basically, it's the belief that every brand, every product, every service has an inherent story that differentiates it and that gives it its reason for being. Um, so that's the part about the product or the brand itself. And then the third pillar is really how do I decide to engage and connect with consumers? Do I want to focus on, you know, my hardcore functional benefits? Do I want to connect with them emotionally? Do I want to tap into their deeper needs and, and sort of like um, uh, emphasize, you know, the archetype um, I'm trying to, the, the type of relationship I'm trying to create with them? Or do I go more lofty and speak about a brand purpose and these kind of things? And so you have these three element, context, product, and uh, type of connections you have, uh, you want to have with your consumers. And that's how the 26 cards are divided. So when I say you pick two or three cards um, I mean, you basically pick one card in each territory uh, and try to combine them. Okay. So, um, and, and we can go through that. We can we can play around with that. Right. So let's pick the example of this shitty yogurt company, actually, <laughs> just yes. as a random example. Uh, let's not yes. name any company, but it's it's they let's say they are selling yogurt, and it's like their their their, their product is is good. They know it's good, but they they struggle to they struggle to position themselves in the market. They don't nobody really knows them or at least people can't really define who they are. They don't really occupy a distinct place in people's mind and they, yep. they want to, to sell to specific people. So this is the situation, right? And we are talking to you to understand how we can, um, position ourselves better. Um, oh. so what do you do as the first, very first step? Like what is, when do you introduce this roulette? What do you do any prep work before? So you do a series of prep work up front. Um, and the way I usually work is you try to identify the key customer segments who would be the best target audience for um, this yogurt. You know, and um, there are various syndicated data you can use to do that um, if you don't have uh, if you don't have the resources and the time to do your own sort of like segmentation study. Uh, you can look at the data that is available with this yogurt manufacturer and usually they have a lot of data already available. Um, so I'd start there. Just try to understand, you know, who are the heavy users? Who are the light users? Are there segments out there that buy yogurts or products similar to yogurts that we are not tapping into? So what are sort of like substitute behaviors um, I may want to tap into? 
But then I also look into it, the sort of like more global trends, right? Or category and global trends. What are the big trends we see in yogurts? Is it like exotic flavors coming out? You know, is when you look at Chobani that has completely overhauled the, the US yogurt market uh, in like what, less than 10 years or something like that. Um, they came all of a sudden with this weird concept of Greek yogurt, um, you know, which frankly, what it is, it's probiotic based yogurts, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I worked like 10 years ago with a, a big food manufacturer and they were trying to introduce probiotics. And the interesting thing is people rejected the notion of, you know, active bacteria that I put in my stomach. So I thought it was brilliant to position that as Greek yogurt with a different texture, um, as a way to get, you know, that proposition across. Um, so those are the type of things I do, but then I'd also have a series of uh, stakeholder interviews with the key players within the organization. And that's obviously the market, um, marketing directors, the market research folks, the product innovation folks to understand, you know, are there yogurt innovations in the pipeline we need to take into account when positioning the brand? because the positioning is supposed to be valid for five, 10 years. I would talk to the sales force and, you know, what the feedback from the, the, the trade, for example, is and these kind of things. So I do this sort of like, I don't want to say three, six, that I do an exhaustive discovery phase um, to try to understand what the key issues are. It's tough to avoid buzzwords, isn't it? Um, I know, I know. And I, I hate you. buzzwords. I, I hate buzzwords. So, uh, <laughs> I can't believe we are talking to uh, about yo the yogurt industry in this episode. That's that's how I, I love to improvise those subjects because usually we come <laughs> up with the shittiest example possible. I think a few episodes ago we picked croissant, how to sell croissant <laughs> to people. So yeah, but this is this is uh, this is good. So you are mentioning those steps very like almost non nonchalantly, like in a in a very easy way, as, because it's obvious to you because you're an expert. And I do want to spend more time in the roulette itself because I think this is. The 26 elements is, is very interesting, yeah. but please repeat the steps that you just mentioned. So the number one, number two, number three, number four. Yeah. So, so if I may go down one level, because it, it's true, it is confusing. There's a lot of things, but there's always one guiding principle for me um, in everything I do, which is the way people behave or don't behave. So that's really the starting point of everything. How do people behave in a specific category, in a specific uh, market. Um, and what that means is do they buy a product? Do they buy a substitute product? Do they buy less of the same product? So those are all the, the sort of like guiding elements uh, you focus on. And then you ask why that is. Um, you know, what, why do they buy less of this type of yogurts in this case and more this type of yogurts? So um, to simplify it, it's really you look at the category itself. Um, what are the competitors doing? You know, how is my brand performance? Do I have a distribution issue, you know, or is there a new distribution channel that helps competitors? So you start with the category, then you look at the, uh, broader category set, which is, um, you know, substitute products. Um, are there things I eat instead of yogurt? And if you want to go a step above that, you look at the need states, you know, what need state do I try to satisfy? I want to indulge. Well, you might as well indulge with a piece of ice cream. You know, maybe a yogurt is a great way to get the ice cream indulgence at a lower calorie. I'm making shit up here. But um, uh, again, you just <laughs> you change the frame of reference. So and then you understand you go one level higher, which is basically the overall trends. It's like how is our society and culture evolving over time? 
and what kind of implication does that have for um, uh, for the product category okay. I'm in? Okay, so uh, if you're listening to this podcast, let's imagine a, uh, a kind of a magnifying glass where <laughs> the first, the very first thing you look at is your own category. So an example of a category, let's, uh, let's step away from the product, uh, the yogurt yeah. example, just briefly. And just briefly, can you explain, let's say, am I understanding right? Maybe in the software industry, a CRM, the CRM would be a category of the software in, in, in yeah. software. So CRM, customer relationship management. Another category could be email marketing software. Yeah. All right. So you look at how people behave and don't behave in this category. What are what is the number one in terms of market share? Number two, number three, and what are the trends within this market? Right? Is, is there the category one, growing or not? Yes. Or is it, is it shifting to a different platform, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Yes. Exactly. So a few years ago, we used to buy softwares using CDs. Um, and and after and after that, it switched to online softwares and and software as a service, and that shifted pretty fast. So that's what you mean by like shift as well. So you're looking at category, and and then you understand what do you understand actually from this? Like looking at just this particular thing, you just understand how people behave and don't behave, right? Well, what you understand is what is what is successful and what isn't, right? Is is what is where's the energy in the category? Who are the players? Uh, what is working and what is not working? That's what is what the you, energy? I like that. that what is right. the energy in the category? That's that's a good way to put it. So then, when you uh, zoom uh, zoom out a bit, then you talk about the entire software industry or the entire yogurt industry, yeah. and you look at where it's going. Correct. And you'd look at it and say, okay, uh, big trends out there is artificial intelligence. How would that impact my CRM service and offering? Is that something I need to take into account or can I put that behind, you know, yeah. all these kind of things. But then you talk about a very interesting concept, which is the, the, the substitute or alternatives um, to something. And this is also critical. It's like, I think a lot of marketers and people who, who want to do marketing don't get this concept very easily because it, it takes a while to get used to. It's your competitors are not necessarily people, uh, companies selling in your same, in the same category. In fact, it could be something completely different. Uh, you might be competing against the uh, alternative could, could be doing nothing. Yeah. You might be competing against, um, if you're trying to sell Excel as a software, you might be competing against pen and paper. You might be competing against uh, a whiteboard. I mean, so, and that you find out by interviewing people, right? Or like, how do you find that out yourself? Well, you find that out at the core, you look at what, what need are people trying to satisfy, right? So if you take CRM software, this is probably a company or an organization that wants to communicate with a customer base that they have in their mailing list and stuff like that and interact with them on a regular basis at a low cost, so to say. Um, that is what they, uh, the reason is they're trying obviously to build their business. So what other solutions enable you to satisfy the similar need? Um, in today's world, you can do it online. You can do it through social channels. You can do it through Twitter, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you start to have different channels that accommodate a similar need, but focusing on the need is what's going to help you, uh, look for substitute or, uh, lack of substitute or no behavior whatsoever. So in this example of this Greek yogurt, and actually I like this idea of talking about this. So let's say our company, our category is actually in the probiotic type of yogurt or 
So we sell a yogurt that actually makes you feel better, like helps your digestive system a bit. And it's actually helping your, um, uh, your digestion and something like this, but it's also yeah. good. Uh, so one of the needs is, uh, the need to, to, to be healthier or, or try to fix your maybe digestive problems. It yeah. could be a very urgent problem that people will be seeking. But on the other hand, you don't want to eat a shitty product that tastes awful. So the second, a secondary need would be, I want to be healthy. I don't want to have a lot of calories into it. I want my digestive system to feel good about it, but also want to enjoy the experience. Yeah. Okay. And uh, just to add one layer to that is that you want your digestive system to feel good. Why is that? Because it strengthens your immune system. That's what the core of your digestive, that's, that's what drives your immune system. So you want to have a strong immune system. Why? Because you know, don't want to get sick. So, I mean, you can, you know, uh, ladder up all the way up until you find something that is really interesting. Uh, what I tend to do when I do this exercise is that I tend to, to, to fall into a rabbit hole of, I don't know where to stop in the why. Because exactly as you said, why do you, are you eating probiotics to, to help your digestive system? Why? Because it helps your immune system. Why? Because I want to feel better about myself. And then you just end up to the same thing. Why? Just because I want to, I want to be uh, alive or like, I just, I want, I want to, I want to be happy. Yeah. So, so yeah. where do you stop? Cause like, let's take this, this example of this yogurt company that we, that we, that we have. Where do we stop in the, the layers? Well, you stop in a position which appeals to customers the most um, and that differentiates you from your competitor. Um, so that's really where you stop. So you're looking for, if everyone speaks about, I have fruit flavors, they're delicious, you know, strawberry, blueberry, yada, yada, yada. Um, and it's a great little indulgence. Then a health message is already differentiating per se if there is a segment of consumers out there that cares for that, if no one gives a shit about health, no need to stop it, stop there either, you know? Um, so, so that's, that's really as simple. Well, as simple as that it's, it's, that's why I come back to the three, uh, the, the, the three pillars, you right. know, the frame of reference, the relevance to the consumers and how you engage with them. And then what do you say about your product or your brand to stand out? Um, in that context with those people. So let's, let's do it right now. Cause we've been talking about it for 30 minutes huh? yeah. um, <laughs> and uh, listeners are waiting for this 26 uh, car. So let's, let's take this example. We're selling probiotic yogurt. Uh, yeah. Let's talk through this roulette. So um, the, you can start wherever, right? So you can start with the context, the consumers or the, um, the, uh, the product of the brand itself. So let's start maybe with the product itself. And okay. I do that on purpose because most marketing agencies hate to speak about the product and I love to speak about the product. You know, uh, they think that no one is interested, but I believe it, people are interested. Um, so for example, in the offering, you could romance the origin where the brand or the product comes from. What do people associate with that and how can that be used to differentiate yourself? So, so it would be like founded in 1829 by two French uh, people Blah, blah, blah. That would be a story. That would be, that would be the creation story. So what I'm talking about is the origin would be, it's part of olive oil. It's part of the Italian lifestyle and diet. And hey, how come Italians are so much healthier and have so much less cholesterol than everyone else? But country of origin could also be, you know, this campaign for uh, Foster's, uh, the Foster's beer, uh, this, you know, uh, Australian for beer. What they did is they tapped into this whole culture of Australia and helped shape it to differentiate the brand. So these are like olive oil, Italy lifestyle and beer from Australia with, you know, the 
nephews of Crocodile Dundee uh, cracking jokes. Uh, country of origin, two very different positionings based on the same principle, right? So that would be one. The second one is the one you just uh, mentioned, which is the creation story. How did it all start? Why did it start? You know, and, and what what's interesting is, especially with companies that have been established for a long time, people even at the organization tend to forget why this, it, this company was initially started, you know. But going back to the origin and trying to understand how do I translate that in a modern way, um, romance, the way the product works, is a third way to speak about it, is, you know, what makes my product different from any other out there? Maybe it's the way it works. You know, I remember Ketchup had a, a long time ago this this campaign on, um, uh, you know, why the pour of the ketchup is so slow when you'd like try to pour it out of the bottle. Why is it so slow? And that taps into another thing, which is the weakness of the product. It's because it's made with real tomatoes, you know, as opposed to fake shit. Um, celebrate the ingredients. That's another big one. Uh, but that can also be an ingredient, could be a, an engine, whether it's the Hemi from Dodge, that could be an ingredient within the brand. It could be specific defining attributes, and that could be anything from, you know, an old campaign the brand had from the 60s to the latch on how the package opens. Um, anything that makes the brand stand out or it's the brand that, you know, is strongly associated with um uh, you know, uh, American Fourth of July barbecue. I don't know. I'm making right. literally. Uh, so maybe Coca Cola and Santa. And uh, correct. And, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Or it can also simply be the what Coca Cola, uh, what McDonald's did recently. The Archers, right? The M in itself has become uh, uh, an attribute of the bread that you recognize immediately. Um, it could be what I said earlier. The, the example with the ketchup. You know, give a, give a meaning to a uh, to a meaning to a brand's weakness. You know, this could be a medicine taste so crappy because nice that's food. a side. That's right. And uh, so, you know, those are all things you can um, uh, you can do or you create a sense of scarcity or exclusivity. You know, is uh, Ferrero, uh, Moncheri in Europe does that, which is a chocolate with a, a cherry inside. Um, and they only use uh, Piedmont cherries. And I don't know if they still do that, but at the time they literally stopped distribution distribution in the summer and they twisted the story saying that we cannot guarantee the quality of our uh, products so we're not going to sell it to you what this creates is a sense of oh my god it's so special you know i'm sure going to go and buy some when they're back in stores um, so have you gone through the full all the product attributes yet or not <laughs> no no i mean like because i have a i just want to make I sure have, i'm asking the question at the right time i have two more to go two more to go let's go so one is the torture test torture set test situation. You know, what is the most extreme situation in which your product could be used or who is the most extreme person to use your product um, as a way to demonstrate how good it is? And the last one is simply um, let experts tell your story, right? If I as a manufacturer can get independent research, independent experts tell you about the, that's the the old from the 60s, like, you know, a dentist recommended. Now oh. everyone laughs about this, but the concept is still the same. Yeah. The experts have changed and the mechanism is still valid, but maybe it's not going to be your dentist any longer. But you, so leave, it, 
sorry to cut you, but you live in the US, yeah. so you understand how, how shitty it is uh, oh, yeah. right there in terms of the TV ads for medicines and stuff. And those oh, yeah. companies, pharma, pharma companies, use that extensively to say that your doctor recommends it or whatever, whoever recommends it. And it's 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 the shittiest thing, one of the shittiest marketing yeah. moves I've ever seen because uh, okay. it really tricks people to use medicine they don't need. But so going back to one thing, I found it fascinating because yeah. you're able to summarize very interesting things. And I think if you're listening to this podcast right now, you picture in your head every time uh, Uli mentioned one attribute, you can think of an example straight away that comes to mind. But the thing that I know people tend to do then is they look at all of those options and they feel like, I think we should all use all of them. They're all so interesting, <laughs> right? So how do, you, how do you convince people to say, as a got company, you cannot pick more than one or else your message is going to be diluted? So the way I do it is usually uh, through workshops. And if you use the cards, which you can buy on my website, what I would do is go through all these. And we just went through the 10 product related and write down all the what I call hypotheses is what are the ideas that come to mind? Right. And what you'll do typically is you'll easily come up with 40, 50, 60 ideas. And then you go through them the next day again and you realize that half of them are crap. And, uh, uh, if you do that in the workshop, you start sort of like start to group them by themes. Um, so you look at all the 60 ideas you had and you create like two or three or four buckets that that all tap into a similar territory or where the different elements work well together. Um, and then with the way the way either large organizations do it is they sort of like, you know, develop positioning statement and then test them with consumers or test boards. Um, but what I've learned is the level of energy in the group when discussing the ideas tells you is a great indicator on how excited people are about it. Even if they get scared a little bit or get nervous, their level of energy goes up as opposed to, oh, yeah, that yogurt tastes great and it's made with good ingredients. Oh, that's a safe positioning. No one is going to get excited by that. In, you know? in my experience, I love what you're mentioning energy again, but in my experience, the other thing that you just mentioned that seems to work is as soon as you, you feel people getting a bit nervous about certain ideas, yes. I feel this is an indicator that this is, this needs to be pursued because it means that if you feel nervous about this, probably all the entire market is feeling nervous about it. And you might want to give it a try then because it's an opportunity to, to get outside of this comfort zone that is a bit too small. Absolutely. It's when they get nervous about it or when they start to argue, right? When you start to have your group dividing into two or three sections. Yeah, we should do it. No, we can't do this. So, you know, the tension that is created and you know, something is happening here. If everyone agrees, yeah, it, you know, it tastes great and it's cheap. We all agree. High five. You know, it's not going to get traction in the market either. So we have this yogurt company. Let's pick uh, the creation story because I started to talk about it. Let's say that it was uh, founded by two French uh, guys um, in 1829, and they just they just created this weird milk that was a bit uh, denser than than milk, and they just they they kept eating this, and they were so fucking healthy, and the entire village was really healthy, and uh, and yeah, so this is the exact recipe that you that they came up with. 150 or whatever uh, years after uh, before. So let's use yeah. that as a product. I think it's pretty cool. Um, okay. Now let's go to the next one. The next okay, the next one would then be, let, let's take the context, the frame of reference, which I mentioned um, earlier. Sure. And so um, as we talked about earlier, is start immediately with your competitive set, but then you can look at um, 
the usage context. When and where do people eat your specific category or indulge in your specific category? Is it when coming home after, you know, a day of work or is it a little snack during the day or is it for breakfast, whatever? What, what situation or usage occasion is your brand used? Is there a meaning associated with this usage occasion or can you associate a meaning with that? So that would be one. Another one which is close to that is tap into existing consumer rituals. So we are full of rituals, right? So when we get ready in the morning, take our shower, brush our teeth, comb our hair. I don't have any, but um, <laughs> if I would, um, it's more than simply going through a physical process, right? It's getting mentally ready uh, for the day. It's organizing your thoughts. Or when you come home at night, you know, you'd kick your shoes off. Um, a consumer ritual with yogurts, for example, and I know that for a fact, is that people tend to take a smaller spoon to enjoy the yogurt longer. And they do that with mousse au chocolat, they do that with any kind of treat, is reduce the size of your spoon so you get more out of it. Do you Fantastic. do that yourself? No, I don't do that. I lick, I lick, the, I lick the pot, but um, okay. uh, I don't do that. Um, but a lot of people do that. And it's a cue for, ooh, that must be particularly good if the person goes through the trouble of doing that. So can I associate that with my brand? Another uh, bigger part, which is very popular right now, it's important, but I hate how it's basically used for everything. It's to be part of culture. So, you know, what are the big cultural trends that allow me to tap into to position my brand? You know, so, so Pepsi fucked up recently about this, right? Yes. They tried to absolutely. run into this uh, the Black Lives Matters movement and all of that. That's right? exactly right. It's like drink my uh, sugared uh, sparkling soda to promote global diversity and uh, racial understanding. It's like, what the fuck? You know, yeah. uh, it's, it's, but everyone tends to gravitate towards that, right? And it, it's the easy short way. But in some cases, it can be extremely, an extremely powerful positioning device. Um, it can be claiming the gold standard. And what I mean with that is every category has the ideal aspiration. So what is the perfect pasta brand or pasta dish. It's probably the one made by a grandma somewhere in Tuscany uh, on a farm. Everything has an ideal sort of like situation people associate with it. Um, or it can be simply uh, disrupt all the category conventions. So what you do is you literally look at your category, look at, you know, the packaging convention, the messaging conventions, the distribution conventions, the consumer segment conventions, you list them all. And then you literally go and say, how can I tap into a different category? How can I do things differently to stand out and, uh, and differentiate myself? Um, sometimes you can resolve a category paradox. And what I mean with that is many categories like electric vehicles, you know, um, looks like shit, you know? So there's this basic paradox of, yeah, you can be, you know, environmentally conscious, but you'll have to drive a shitty car and, you know, not get laid in the process or not impress your neighbor. Um, comes Tesla, resolves the car paradox. All of a sudden, an electric car can compete with, you know, the biggest uh, sports cars out there in terms of performance and speed and looks sexy as hell. Um, so there's a car paradox that can be resolved. Are there specific barriers? Do you, People may be not using your category for very simple, obvious reasons. But if you don't ask the questions, you're not going to find it out. Um, you know, I don't think 
I can find you in my neighborhood, or I don't think it's going to address my specific problem, even though it does. So understanding barriers. And then another thing is simply uh, identify a brand enemy. So what is it? Is there like an enemy out there? And that can be a belief, that can be a cause, that can be a contrarian attitude that I can stand, uh, uh, take a stand against. You know, and that can say, you know, the standards of beauties are defined by others. No, they're defined by myself. My enemy is the stereotypes in media and, uh, uh, and advertising and culture and stuff. So those are, for example, the contextual uh, trigger points that you can focus on. And how do you pick them? Do you pick them the same way than the previous category? Yeah, you'd go through them and basically identify what are the um, uh, what ideas come to mind on how to position to this brand. So this leads again to these ideas that then you mix together. Or what you can do is you can say, you know what, um, uh, Louis, let's take uh, tap into a consumer ritual and let's romance the way the product works. Let's force those two together and try to see what ideas we can come up with. I'm speechless. It's pretty good. It's, re <laughs> it's really in-depth and I'm trying my hardest to find other potential angles that you haven't mentioned, but obviously you've gone through 1,300 case studies. It's unlikely that I'm going to find anything. But what springs to mind again is like you mentioned two things that to me I tend, I like to do in parallel for product. I have a tendency to, as you might have noticed from this podcast, to, to pick an enemy. I love to do that really early on, pick an enemy and, and go against it. And uh, that's easier to find a purpose than a vision for the brand. But then yeah. I also like to to go over barriers and identify key barriers and say, well, this is also what you have. The reason why you might not buy from us or consider us, but here is the objection uh, to those concerns or those barriers. Yep. So let's like, correct me if I'm wrong, but this exercise doesn't mean that you can't use all some of them or more than one per category. It only means that the way you will communicate that to your specific target market needs to be very simple. Like you, you can't really yes. go about communicating too many messages at once. No. So, and it's not a messaging platform per se. It can lead to a messaging platform, but the benefit of it is when you think about every single idea that I mentioned in the two categories we talked about, none of them is like sort of like the magic lantern, right? They're all basic tried and true success strategies. Um, the difference is that you all have them in front of you And you can go through them way quicker. So you hear them and you say, oh, yeah, you know, brand barrier is a great, uh, is a great uh, way to approach this or finding an enemy. If I ask you, Louis, what are the, all the positioning angles you can use to position a brand? You will probably be able to come up with seven, eight, nine, ten as an experienced marketer. If you're inexperienced, you will come up with maybe two or three. This allows you to look at it literally from 26%. So it really jogs your mind and your memory and allows you to go through the process quicker. It's not magic. It's just sound, tried and true jogging for your brain, basically. Right. Uh, Let's go through the last category. And I know it's, <laughs> it's a difficult exercise. I know it's not easy to go through 26 stuff, but it needs to be done. You started. You need to finish. Yeah, no, I love it. I love it. Uh, the last one is the rules of engagement. And I call it the rule of engagement because it's really how do I connect with my customers, right? So the most obvious one, which is like the old CPG thinking is what's your benefit? 
You know, what, what, why should I buy your brand or use your service? What's the benefit you provide? And that can be a functional benefit, an emotional benefit, a social benefit, a psychological benefit. The next level, uh, which is something that appeared like in the marketing culture a little a few years back, but that has been relevant for a long time, is how does your brand or your service or your product appeal to the senses? And what does that trigger? So it's a pure sensory description of your experience, basically. Um, another one can be to purposefully dramatize the, the reward, right? So you're going to be successful if you do, but if you use my product, um, but dramatize it in, in, in an exaggerated way so that it becomes appealing. So I'm thinking of Gatorade or uh, links or what's the name? Um, it's deodorant. Yeah, X, yeah. Links, yeah. yeah, and they dramatize the outcome by making you feel, which is a very sexist way to put it, but uh, as a man, if you put on the, this deodorant, you'll have a, a sea of, uh, of women coming to you because yeah. you smell nice, right? Yeah, and the need, need state for these uh, horny uh, teenagers is to be appealing uh, for the ladies, right? And in a completely over-the-top way, they, they dramatize that. Um, then you, we talked earlier about a consumer ritual, um, but you can also create a brand ritual, which is if you eat this product or this, this, uh, drink this drink in this fashion, it's going to taste better. And there are studies that basically show that if you ritualize an experience, it, it, you enhance the benefit of it. And that can be anything from like the Oreo cookie, you know, how you, twist it open, do you bite into it, do you lick the side? It can be Stella Artois, the way you you pour your beer, you know, or Guinness and all these kind of things. So they ritualize the experience and instead of saying, shit, I have to wait seven minutes for my beer, why are they so slow? It's like, no, they're preparing the greatest beer experience for you through this ritual. It's brilliant. Um, but then you can go up a little bit and focus on shared values. So what are the values your brand has and your consumer have that allow you to bring together, uh, that you can bring together through your offering? Um, and then we have the, the one that is the other big buzzword in the category, which is the brand purpose. You know, what's my purpose? And I think it's a really valuable angle, but when you look at my methodology, it's only one of 26 uh, ways to look at it. And the point you made earlier is, is very uh, relevant too, is, you know, um, when you do a, a brand purpose exercise, you basically ladder up uh, to the sort of like the emotional benefits you provide. And you always end up with happiness. I mean, ultimately, that's the, the quest of happiness is, so whether it's toilet paper, yogurt, <laughs> or, or uh, whatever product you want to choose, if you use a brand purpose approach, you're always going to end up with happiness. <laughs> uh, which is ridiculous. So when you see brand advertising out there uh, that speaks about, you know, how, I don't know, an electric screwdriver is going to make you happy, you know where that comes from. It's just bullshit, you know. Um, and I think there are better ways to do that. And the third one is simply to take an archetype approach. An archetype are simply these constructs, these types that tap into specific needs. So this could be... Um, you know, people in a category may have an explorer mindset, you know, always discovering new things. Or people in the category might need a brand that can go to for information, guidance, and these kind of things. So that would be like a sage archetype. So if you identify an archetype that is relevant in your category, then you can 
sort of like uh, uh, align your marketing activities and the way you position your brand with that archetype. Wow. So, so we, we did the rules of engagement. A lot of value. Uh, <laughs> thanks for doing this exercise. 26 ideas. I, it, it's true, as you said, that it definitely springs a lot of ideas in, in my head right now. And I'm thinking of many ways I could use this. It, it's brilliant. And I, it feels like those different elements could be tried and played together to do tests campaigns as well. It's like, what if yeah. we do those three together? How do people react and all of that? So that's really strong. And I hope if you're listening to this episode right now that you're, uh, you got a lot of value out of this, uh, episode. Thank you uh, so much once again for going through this step-by-step -step, uh, with me. So the last few questions I have for you, are always the same, as you know, um, what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years, 20 years, 50 years? Um, I think that that's what you've seen positioning bullet. It's not rocket science, right? It's a return to the basics. And that's what I said earlier is we live and, and it's amplified in the marketing industry itself is we, we tend to be distracted by the newest shiny object, right? And we tend to run after it. And what I've learned in my 20 plus years is go back to people, their behavior and why they do it. And then try to understand how does the technology add value or doesn't add value. So come back to the core or to the essence, which is here is a person you want to, you know, win over, convince that your brand and product is the shit, that that's the thing you need to have. How are you going to do that? Um, and one thing I've learned is, you know, I, I talked recently to a younger marketeer um, who had never heard of the concept of net promoting score. You know, it's like telling me you've never heard of the concept of brand positioning and yet you are in marketing for like 10 years. There is a very basic sort of like set of tools and understanding and learnings that gets lost. And I, well, it's, it's more my hope for the marketing industry that we come back to that. So maybe the answer to the next question will be uh, related. What are the top three resources you would recommend listeners to read, to listen to, to watch uh, outside of your book, uh, the positioning uh, roulette that people can find on Amazon and all of that, right? Yeah, uh, on Amazon and on my website. Um, one book that was influential for me is uh, is by a gentleman called uh, Robert, I think it's Caldini or Cialdini. Cialdini, yeah. Cialdini, and he wrote Influence, the Psychology of Influence. Brilliant uh, application of psychological learnings uh, out of psycholo psychological research on how we get influence. Very basic, very fundamental. That's one thing. The second thing, it might be very surprising, is fucking talk to people. <laughs> you know, um, I'm the type of guy who I, I'd always chat up my taxi drivers or my Uber drivers. Or when I'm in the playground, watch my kids play, I talk to others. It's like, talk to people, you know, especially for strategists. It's so easy and convenient to look at existing reports, do a Google search, do all these kind of things. No, talk to your neighbor, you know, and, and spend the time to listen. You learn so much. It's, it's mind blowing. Um, and the second, it's uh, more a, a gentleman. It's a, a guy called uh, Mark Ritson. And Mark is, uh, do you know him? Yeah, he's actually... Uh, this episode will be published after his episode will be published. He's a brilliant, oh. brilliant marketer, but please talk about him. Yeah. 
No, what I like about him is, is, is actually, I thought I'd recommend him to you, but you were like two steps ahead of me, of course, is he's a no bullshit contrarian, right? Yeah, so, I love him. Um, and that's why I love about it. It keeps, keeps you like real, keeps you fresh. And uh, if you if you research him, even on YouTube, he has made a couple of speeches that are going to sort of like brusque your ego if you are all into this whole trendy marketing bullshit. But it's a nice call to reality. So Mark is someone I discovered several months back, and I'm just following him because it's a breath of fresh air. Yeah, and he has his way to to talk about contrarian ideas that are quite like the big picture. But yeah. when you ask him and drill into specific step by steps, there's no problem going into it. So the Mark Rickson episode is already live and I'm going to do a bad job at remembering exactly what we talked about. But I remember him going through a very detailed way to pick exactly where your company should be in the marketplace based on very simple set of questions and uh, surveys, a detailed survey sent to a broad spectrum of people. And oh, it was an amazing interview as well. So thanks for mentioning him, uh, cause I feel <laughs> you have a, a few similar attributes, uh, should I say? I wish. So where can listeners connect with you, learn more from you? Um, the best way is really through my uh, website, Louis. It's uh, uh, first minus the minus trousers.com. So first the trousers, then the shoes is my company, but that was a little long as a as an earl. So I cut it down to first the trousers, but there is a minus sign or a dash in between each word. So first the trousers.com. And then you can also get uh, the list I just wrote you. You have a free uh, download of that list with those 26 questions. I encourage you, obviously, to go for the cards, but uh, there you get a first look at those 26 uh, territories where uh, and, and learn a lot from those yeah and and, and uh, sorry to cut you but yes uh, i think as a as good as good people and list, uh, i know that my listeners are like they're fantastic um always sending me a, a lot of emails and feedback and stuff and it's always so interesting to hear from them i think a good thing to do is once when you have someone uh, like uli just going through his entire product or his entire book in front of us almost uh, without any expectation in return, obviously expecting to, to, uh, to sell a bit of, uh, uh, to sell his book and which is normal. But I think if you got value out of, the, out of this episode right now, um, it's only fair to, 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 to give value back by, uh, by uh, getting the cards if you think that they will be useful uh, to your company. And I mean that because it's, it's been an hour that we talked and I, quizzed you and everything I could uh, and you've been great so once again no, I, I appreciate that I look at it really um, and I appreciate you saying that but I look at it as really um, you know it's like cookbooks you know it's like a recipe if Paul Bocuse makes an omelette I trust me it's going to be 10 times better than if I make an omelette using his recipe and I think experience um, uh, affinity and all these kinds help make the tool better but the tool is already is going to take you three steps ahead of where you are today. Even the free list that you can download on my site is going to take you way further than where you are as a marketeer today. Well, once again, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Louis. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email list uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one -one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you 
my numbers and how many listens we get. And I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests. And perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday. So don't be afraid to subscribe. I'm not going to spam you. And you can always uns unsubscribe for sure, if you wish. The second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback. We know that this show is not perfect yet, and we always... Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.